Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's book is Agricultural Landscapes, Seeing Rule Through Design by Dewey Thorbeck, published by Routledge in 2019. Hi, Dewey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be here with you. Uh, so let's start with, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, it's a little bit of a, a life uh, journey in terms of where I am in my life today and how I got there and why I uh, became interested in rural issues and uh, wrote three books. Uh, the last one, uh, Agricultural Landscapes, uh, was just published by uh, Rutledge. But I uh, grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota called Bagley. and. Uh, I, my dad had a gas station, and I worked in the gas station. We also had a little farm outside of town. And uh, a small rural town in uh, the United States back uh, in uh, th- at that time uh, was populated by townspeople, but then all the farmers had small farms. And on Saturday night, everybody came to town, and it was a big celebration. And uh, But, of course, they were milking cows and everything else, so they had to go back to their farms late in the afternoon. And so everything was kind of integrated between rural and the small town. Then I uh, I uh, st- started college. I went to a small college called Augsburg College. And I was taking an engineering drafting course because, uh, uh, first of all, I always liked to draw. And uh, so my original idea was to become an airplane designer. And so I was taking pre-engineering at this college, and uh, and uh, when I was doing these uh, axonometric types of drawings, the uh, I told a professor, I said, you know, I I really like to draw, but this these kinds of uh, of uh, uh, very tight uh, renderings, uh, uh, it was not. I wasn't very interested. In it. And he said, well, have you ever thought about being an architect? And I said, uh, no, I uh, never even thought about it. He says, well, I'm going down this afternoon to visit the architects who are remodeling our library here at the college, and would you like to come along? And I said, yeah, sure, I would. And uh, so I went with him, and when I walked into that office, I saw drawings of buildings on the wall. And I literally, it's probably hard for people to understand, but I didn't realize architects designed buildings at that point in time. I thought contractors just built them. And uh, when I saw those drawings, all of a sudden it dawned on me that people design buildings. And I knew right then and there that's what I wanted. And uh, I remember the architect asking me if I knew anything about uh, architecture. And I said, no. And he said, have you heard of Frank Lloyd Wright? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd heard of it. I've heard of him. And he says, well, you know, architecture is very difficult and doesn't pay that much. And uh, But frankly, the more he was trying to talk me out of it at that point, the stronger I I got into it. And so after that meeting, I uh, went the next day over to the University of Minnesota and applied uh, to get into the School of Architecture. And that's where I I, I transferred over that uh, fall. And uh, so that was a five-year program. And I worked in an architect's office when I was going to school uh, to kind of pay my way and so forth. And then I applied, uh, a lot of the graduates from the University of Minnesota went to uh, Harvard or MIT uh, to get a a master's degree in architecture. And I didn't want to go there. So uh, I'd heard about uh, Louis uh, Kahn, who was teaching at the uh, Yale School of Architecture. And uh, I thought, that's where I'd like to go. And so I applied and I was accepted. I got a scholarship. And uh, so I went off to Yale, uh, where I got my graduate degree. And um, when I talk about life journey, you know, you're, you're always coming to a point in your life, and this is true of, uh, of everybody, 
you know, you have a, a choice. You, you can go to the right or you can go to the left or you can go straight ahead. And uh, I decided after Yale, even though I had job offers in New York City and other places, uh, that I really wanted to come back to Minnesota because that's where my uh, I just felt comfortable doing that. And so I rejoined the firm that I was working with uh, when I was still going uh, to school. And then uh, when I was at Yale, I heard about the American Academy in Rome, uh, that uh, uh, it was an opportunity to live at the academy uh, and uh, scholarship and room and board and everything. And I applied and uh, I won the Rome Prize. I was one of two architects that won it that year. And uh, later that fall, went to Rome and uh, uh, actually to Naples. It was an 11-day boat trip from New York City to Naples back in those days. And we were met there uh, by uh, some people from the academy. They loaded us up into a bus and we took us up to Rome. Middle of the night, checked into the academy building and uh, indicated where my studio was. And the next morning I got up and walked up there and I opened the doors and walked in and there was big windows. I, all, all of a sudden out in front of me, here was Rome. And it was just such a totally different uh, experience. And, uh, and, uh, and leading up to uh, uh, something here that was a, a big uh, change. And I didn't realize this much at the time. When I, during the two years I was at the academy, of course, we did a lot of touring of uh, Roman ruins with, uh, with uh, historians. And uh, so we got to uh, see these places in an entirely different uh, way than you would if you were just simply a tourist uh, going out looking at them. Uh, but we also went and visited uh, some of the Italian hill towns near Rome. Uh, one of them was Orvieto. And Orvieto was just an incredible experience because, first of all, it was a rural city uh, where everybody, the farmers and the people in the city, they all lived together on top of a hill. Uh, it was so completely different than I, what I grew up with and what rural areas were like in the, in the United States that I was familiar with. And, uh, and I really was impressed by this because it's not only places where people, farmers work. They had their donkeys down in the lower level that today are mostly shops. But in the morning, they would load up their donkeys and go down into the valley and work on the wine fields and whatnot. And then they would all come back home at night up on top of the hill. And here were a, a great cathedral in, uh, in Orvieto and uh, uh, beautiful buildings and whatnot. And it was just so different. And I didn't realize it at the time uh, but I, uh, I was also sketching, and so uh, my entire life as I've traveled around, uh, uh, I've sketched and recorded places. And, I, and after my two years at the academy, that I reached another kind of turning point. I had job offers. I could have gone to San Francisco, to Philadelphia, to New York again. And uh, again, I decided to go back to Minnesota. And uh, I... Uh, I went back and uh, started to work uh, teach uh, work with the uh, same firm that I'd worked with before. And uh, the professor, the head of that firm, was also a professor in the School of Architecture. And um, all of a sudden, I got a call within a matter of six months after I got back, uh, saying that they had an opportunity for me to start teaching. And uh, so I took it up right away. And uh, so uh, part time. So. I continued to work in the architectural firm's office, and then I started to teach design in the School of Architecture. And at that time, I was the youngest faculty member that they had hired. Uh, well, I'm still at the university and still in the College of Design. I'm now the oldest one. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still the youngest one, huh? <laughs> well, you know, time goes by. But uh, the combination of uh, working in the office and uh, and uh, uh, teaching uh, just seemed like a very comfortable kind of thing to me. And then another uh, interesting thing happened, and that is that uh, uh, there was a graphic designer from uh, Germany that was uh, uh, in the graphic design program at Yale the same time I was there. His name is Peter Seitz. And um, 
we got to know each other a little bit. Uh, we you know, a different school. I mean, he was in a different uh, area of graphics, and uh, and I was in architecture. But uh, after I got back to Minnesota, then he was hired by Walker Art Center, which is one of the really good um, museums of modern art uh, uh, in the country. And uh, he was hired to become their design curator. So he and I, <clears throat> when he came to Minnesota, he and I kind of reconnected and uh, started to talk about uh, uh, the way designers worked and, uh, and uh, you know, an architect and a graphic designer. And we, uh, we had a lot of kind of discussions. We started to talk about the idea of maybe we should start a firm, an interdisciplinary design firm. And uh, uh, within a, about a year, we actually ended up doing that. Uh, with a landscape architect, Roger Martin, who was actually, he won the Rome Prize the same time I did. And uh, he had gone out to uh, Berkeley uh, and then came back to start the uh, new Department of Landscape Architecture at the university. Uh, he became a, a partner in the group, and we called our firm InterDesign. And uh, then there was a computer specialist uh, who was head of the uh, hybrid computer laboratory at the university. And... Um, Peter uh, Seitz was very interested in the computer in terms of how it might influence design. But back in those days, uh, you know, no, we didn't have computers in the office. But uh, we thought we, uh, we asked uh, uh, Steve Kahn, a computer specialist, to also become connected with our firm. Well, here's an interesting thing. It turned out that the Minnesota Zoo uh, uh, board uh, was they had been franchised by the state legislature to build and design and build a new zoo in Minnesota. And the th three or four of us started to think about it and saying, well, you know, this zoo, I guess it's got buildings, it's got exhibits, it's got landscape. It's a perfect kind of thing for an interdisciplinary design firm to uh, go after. And uh, we, we formed our firm and we went after the zoo and by gosh, we were selected to design it. And, uh, so, uh, and at that time, I think we were probably one of the very few multidisciplinary design firms where everybody was equal. And, uh, and the way we kind of worked together is that design with a capital D became the thing that was, so even as an architect, when we talked and worked together, it was me working as a designer or Peter Seitz in graphics and exhibits uh, he was a designer, and, P and Roger in landscape was was a designer. So the word design then became a way to kind of bring all these things together. And uh, we ended up working eight years to design, uh, first of all, the master planet, and then uh, we were reselected to uh, uh, to uh, uh, complete the design and get it built. And uh, it finally was. And. Uh, it was the first northern climate zoo in the world that was, that was designed to be open year-round. And one critical thing that we wanted to do was to create the illusion uh, that the animals were free and the humans were caged. Uh, so we, can, we worked very carefully to kind of define how people moved around. And when they looked into the exhibits, whether they were outside or inside, and made a big uh, tropical rainforest, uh, it was, that was a very strong because in typical zoos in the winter uh, all the cats would get together and they would go into a building and uh, all the primates were in another building and so the the zoo typical zoo in those days always separated the animal from the habitat and this idea of connecting architecture and habitat or landscape uh, was a real critical kind of thing what we were trying to do and it had a big influence on me and uh, but we worked together as a team for about 10 years, and, uh, and uh, then uh, the, uh, Peter decided to go off with his wife and start his own in, uh, graphic design firm. Roger uh, uh, did the same thing, and uh, uh, Steve Kahn went back to the university and uh, is director of the hybrid computer laboratory. But then I continued as an architect and uh, I worked on many, many different projects over the years. But uh, I was slowly kind of uh, remembering this experience. And my wife and I did a lot of 
traveling around the world. And uh, I was always sketching when we went places. And finally, in 1997, I... Uh, I approached the uh, dean of the College of Design and the, uh, and, uh, the dean of the uh, College of Food, Ag, Agricultural and Natural Resource Sciences about the idea of a center for rural design. Um, the whole idea was to, uh, in this center, was to uh, 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 bring design as a problem-solving process to rural issues, just like urban design deals with urban issues. And uh, they, they agreed to let me do it. Uh, they each, each put about, I think, $5,000 into it. And uh, I, the center got it going. But uh, then uh, the, the dean of the uh, College of Agriculture, he, uh, with Mark Udoff, who was uh, then president of the University of Minnesota, uh, in the budget, I, I got funding for the Center for Rural Design directly from the state legislature. And that opened up the door then for uh, my center uh, to work with rural communities all over the state. And uh, and then I remembered uh, the contrast uh, between and that visiting that hill town at Orvieto in Italy and other hill towns over there and the difference and then starting to look at uh, rural areas around the world. Uh, I... Uh, and I'd always been interested in barns. I zoo maybe kind of brought up that uh, idea of designing for places for animals. And um, of course, in the zoo, the animal quarters we hid underground. That's where they would go at night. And then during the day, they would come out and be in the uh, in the exhibit. Um, and uh, uh, so I. Uh, started to draft up an idea for a book on uh, architecture and agriculture. And I got, I got turned down and, uh, and uh, from three or four publishers. And then uh, as the Center for Rural Design was continuing, I started to think, well, maybe I should really write a book about rural design. And so I, uh, I went through a process of kind of outlining that and uh, made contact with several uh, publishers, and they all said no, except Rutledge uh, in the United Kingdom. I mean, they just said yes right away. And uh, over the next two years, then I uh, uh, worked uh, closely with them and got the first book, uh, which was called Rural Design, uh, a new design discipline was uh, published. And, uh, and it was basically, I think it was the first book uh, design-oriented that uh, uh, to try to establish the idea of rural design. And that was back in 2012. And uh, since then, I think uh, the whole idea of rural design has been catching on uh, around the world. And uh, I was invited over to China, and uh, uh, I'm now a vice director of the uh, World World Development uh, Committee that uh, China and the European Union put together. Uh, not much is going on on it right now, but uh, but it. Uh, and then I've been lecturing and speaking in places all over the United States and up in Canada and whatnot. But then I I decided to go ahead with a second book on architecture and agriculture, and uh, and Rutledge was interested in, so that got published in uh, 2017, and then. The notion, I always wanted a trilogy of, uh, of uh, books that would talk about rural design and its broad uh, uh, aspects uh, about the architecture of agriculture and uh, the design of barns. And, you know, they were very beautiful at one time and under a lot of crappy buildings uh, built in farms and so forth. And thinking that, you know, farmers should be thinking about design. And, uh, and so that's where that book. Uh, but then the third book, uh, which was kind of the, uh, the uh, brought the other two together, uh, called Agricultural Landscapes, because um, uh, in my entire career, I have always sketched uh, when we, uh, we travel. I carry little, uh, maybe uh, uh, 10 by 10 sketchbooks around, and I sketch in ink and uh, 
And then I have a watercolor set. So I, I, I learned one way to sketch places with, uh, with watercolor, just to sketch them. And then uh, that night at the hotel or wherever we're staying, then I'd bring up my watercolors and then I would add color to the uh, sketch. And uh, so I started to do that many, many, many years ago, and it's been continued. So right now, I have uh, over 36 uh, sketchbooks filled with uh, my drawings. And I always argue uh, to uh, present or tell people why I like to sketch and why I think everybody should sketch, whether they're good or not. Because if you take a picture with a camera, the image stays in the camera. If you make a drawing, a sketch of it, it stays in your head. And uh, so I, I can look back at my sketches from 10, 15 years ago and just walk right into the, into the place. Uh, whereas I might look at a photograph of a place that I took at that same period. And uh, it, it just, it seems like it's, well, it's just, it's just an image. And uh, so there's something about drawing that really uh, enhances the uh, way that you can communicate uh, the uh, the feelings of a place, uh, but also it, it's a way of kind of remembering uh, in your, yourself as to uh, why why you did it, what was important about that particular place at that particular time, and uh, and how you recorded it. Uh, so the book of agricultural landscapes, uh, seeing rural through design, uh, kind of wraps that whole idea of rural design, architecture, and agriculture, and then just uh, uh, tr try to express uh, how I, as an architect, have looked at rural landscapes and agricultural landscapes, as I prefer to call it, uh, around the world. And uh, when I was in China uh, with this uh, development of the uh, world rural uh, development, uh, I met a guy named Kohafkin. Uh, uh, I forget his first name offhand. But he was with the United Nations and was uh, very instrumental in uh, uh, developing uh, world, uh, critical world agricultural heritage sites. There are the typical world heritage sites having to do with uh, great buildings, you know, like uh, St. Peter's in Rome is on a world heritage site. But this, uh, this whole series was, had all to do with agricultural landscapes. And there are some really tremendous, uh, like beautiful places like uh, the rice terraces in China or in, uh, in uh, Vietnam and uh, Thailand and so forth, where they've been uh, growing rice in, in, on these mountainous areas by building all these terraces and doing it in such a way that it, the landscape is enhanced. And... Uh, uh, so it's, it's, just, it's just a way of kind of living with the land in such a way that it provides food uh, and substance and uh, a lifestyle. And, uh, and so these World Heritage Agricultural Sites, the United Nations now has, I think, 17 of them that they've uh, declared. And uh, so I, I've been to quite a few of those, and so I've sketched them, and I write about them in the book. And, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and as, as time is going on, uh, you know, there's some real huge issues. I mean, if we're going to have another two and a half billion people on this planet over the next uh, 30 years, by 2050, uh, you know, where are they, where's the food coming from? What's the impact of climate change? How about water resources? Uh, how about renewable energy? I mean, that's another whole thing. And uh, so I write about this, these broad issues in the, uh, in the books and uh, try to bring the uh, concept of design uh, because uh, through the 20 years that I had the Center for Rural Design going at the university, I found out if I went out and uh, discussed a project in a rural area, if I introduced myself as an architect, oh, it, then they started to think about buildings. And where the issues might add much more to do with land use and uh, and economic issues and whatnot. And I, I quickly found out if I uh, introduced myself as a designer, uh, then they 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 didn't zero in on any one thing. 
And we were able to use design as a problem-solving process uh, to focus on the issues that were impacting them. And that's uh, kind of what these, these books are all about, is to try to uh, bring design. Because, you know, Tricia, when you got up this morning, you, you were a designer when you were deciding what you were going to wear. And we're all designers because we all kind of look at an issue. We go through a process of determining what we're going to do. And uh, then we have a solution. And, uh, and that's what design does. And uh, so I've been trying to uh, promote and still am at the university where I'm connected uh, still today. And in my private practice, uh, uh, this idea of uh, bringing design as a way to uh, make connections uh, between uh, the design professions, uh, but also look at design as a way to kind of enhance how how um, uh, knowledge is used. Uh, you know, in the United States, we have land-grant universities. The uh, University of Minnesota is one of them. There's 87 land-grant universities. And they were established uh, back in the 1800s to, uh, to bring uh, knowledge to rural areas primarily around the country. And um, with three focuses, education, research, and public service. And over the uh, last 140 years or so as they've been operating, what's happened is that the, uh, as, that the uh, universities uh, divided into colleges. And in those colleges, there are select the College of Design. It has architecture. It has landscape architecture. It has interior design. It has apparel design. It has a housing uh, section. And it has a, uh, a graphic design. So here we are, a college of design broken into these various departments. And rarely do you ever do anything together. Rarely do the architects and landscape architects actually, but the students work on things. And uh, so I'm, I'm involved really uh, in trying to kind of break these barriers down to find ways that we can cross borders and uh, make connections uh, to come up with better solutions. Uh, so like the urban-rural divide. Uh, in the United States, there is a huge, and actually around the world, uh, there is a big divide between uh, urban people and rural people. And uh, this divide is causing uh, a lot of concern because uh, uh, you don't, in terms of where dealing with some of these critical issues of, of climate change, food security, water resources, and so forth. And uh, so we need to try to find a way to kind of link urban issues and rural issues together so that we can look at these things on a very uh, integrated kind of way. Because we're trying to, when we get involved with a rural community and whatnot, we're trying to work up a, a pattern for them to, uh, to kind of shape their land use today, but to do it in such a way that their great-grandchildren can also shape it in the future. So we're trying to be very um, broad-minded. And uh, and uh, so a lot of it is kind of educating uh, people in these rural communities, in particular that I've worked with the most, uh, as to how design can help them resolve their own problems. And we often do that with a, uh, with a community group uh, made up of uh, citizens, and uh, and frankly, I discovered too that uh, if a woman is in charge of that committee, uh, we have a much better chance of kind of uh, uh, getting uh, community support. Uh, whereas, unfortunately, the men, in particular in rural areas, uh, are often kind of connected with uh, being county commissioners or city council people or township board. Uh, that's changing, of course, and uh, and I don't mean, mean to be uh, sexist here in any kind of a way, uh, but I think men have to kind of observe how women operate, and uh, because if you can't get people to come together with a consensus about an idea, you're not going to have uh, a lot of support for it. 
Uh, there was a woman, uh, uh, Catherine Kramer, a professor over at the University of Wisconsin. She did a survey of, of rural people, and there were three things that she found out that uh, rural people really didn't like. One is that uh, when the state governments or county governments or uh, kind of came in and helped them on something, it was always a top-down approach. Uh, it, was, it was them telling the community what they needed, uh, not bottom up, which is what is really required. Uh, secondly, they, they felt that they were being ignored. And, uh, and third, that um, uh, they weren't being listened to. And so in America right now, we have a huge divide. And uh, I don't think Donald, Donald Trump would have been our president right now if it weren't for those rural votes. Because uh, he talked about making America great again. And a lot of rural people kind of remember what rural areas were like back in the 1960s and, uh, and a very vibrant part of the United States. And uh, whereas from that time point, there's been such a migration from rural to urban, and uh, uh, I think that's starting to change now, but uh, uh, it, it, the time is really important for doing it. And um, so I've been rambling on a, a great deal here, uh, uh, Trisha, about kind of how these books came about. But uh, what I hope to do in this last book, which has uh, about 180 of my sketches from all over the world, is to um, try to illustrate to the readers uh, about the beauty of place and how our architecture and landscape uh, and how human uh, activities uh, kind of shape the way we live on this planet and that it's something that can be, uh, uh, can be designed. And uh, so all I can tell you is I'm having a heck of a lot of fun uh, doing it. Uh, One of my, my private architectural work right now. I'm uh, designing a place called Norway House uh, in Minnesota. There's a lot of Norwegians here, but it's a, a place that'll be kind of a focal point for connections between Norway and America, and also in terms of international kind of um, programs having to do with peace. And there's a peace initiative, music. Uh, uh, and other kinds of, of programs that help break down barriers because the community that is located in back in the uh, 1900s, early 1900s, a lot of Norwegian immigrants uh, settled in that uh, area. And uh, there was a big church built on this same block that we're building the Norway House uh, Conference and Event Center. And uh, today uh, there's a lot of immigrants from Somalia and it, the, the interesting how immigration it, it keeps continuing to shape America and it's part of our heritage and I think it's part of our future. And so uh, uh, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm trying through this Norway House project to illustrate um, how this heritage can be a way of shaping how we all live together in the future. And uh, uh and, and so that kind of connects back in a way to what I'm still trying to do at the university uh, with my uh, research there is to make connections between urban and rural. So we're, we're looking at a project right now. We're trying to get some funding for it. I'm looking at uh, communities in, in rural, urban, and also what we call peri-urban, which is that area in between urban and rural. Uh, is to try to look at these issues of food, water, and energy, uh, how we can maybe find ways to use lands that uh, uh, aren't being very uh, useful right now uh, to kind of find ways that the community, from a, in a bottom-up kind of approach, uh, can start to look at these uh, big issues of climate change and uh, food, water, and energy uh, at a local level rather than waiting for the government or somebody else to kind of, kind of do it. Uh, because it gets back to uh, the way uh, people have always lived on the land and, uh, and 
respected it. And uh, um, so the, the world is changing very rapid, rapidly. And, uh, and I'm just arguing that design uh, is a, uh, a way to kind of uh, bridge that gap and uh, to find ways to shape land uses and uh, the way people live uh, for the future, but to do it in such a way that our great great grandkids can also uh, shape their future. And uh, we're climate change is uh, very obvious to all of us right now in the United States. Uh, the weather has been changing a great deal. So, so there are some big, huge issues out there. And um, I'd like to see architects and landscape architects and graphic designers, interior designers, uh, find a way to work more closely together uh, to be able to uh, influence each other and, uh, and find ways to communicate and connect with, uh, with uh, citizens. You know, otherwise, developers are going to just continue to shape things. And I think there are better methods. And... Uh, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. That's, that's where I am. <laughs> that's okay. Well, that a lot of fun. <laughs> I think you answered all the qu- most of the questions that I had. Uh- <laughs> well, I, I, it's a it's a life story, and uh, and uh, um, you know, my wife and I are hoping to go back to Rome in March, and uh, and uh, you know, we, we took a train ride, uh, just a digressus, a, a train ride from Moscow to Mongolia, a nine day train ride through. Uh, uh, the Siberian uh, region of, uh, of Russia. Uh, the European side is all forested mostly. And once you cross over into the Asian side, it opens up into the open landscape. So it, it changes a great deal. And on the way at nine days, every day we would stop at a city. Uh, near Lake Bakal, just north of Mongolia, there's a city called Irkutsk. Very interesting because Irkutsk was the place that Tsar Nicholas the second sent all the people he didn't like. You know, they were intellectuals. There were maybe some military people. Uh, there were uh, wealthy people. Today, Irkutsk has nine scientific research centers going on there. And uh, so, you know, here's this crazy thing about this Tsar doing something because he didn't like the people. And out of that, this is the probably the intellectual center of Russia today. And... Uh, so it's just kind of one of these interesting uh, things that uh, uh, life's history has shaped uh, things and it continues to shape things. Uh, but then the nine days we were sitting on a train rocking constantly because the Siberian Railroad uh, is where a lot of freight trains go through. Uh, then we flew from there to or Mongolia, actually, to, uh, to uh, Tokyo. And then took the bullet train from Tokyo, Tokyo to Kyoto, 150 miles an hour, just as smooth as uh, uh, like you were sitting in your living room. Uh, so it just, just the contrast between Russian trains and Japanese trains. I mean, it was just an interesting contrast. And uh, you know, we live on a very interesting pla- planet. Uh, very interesting, beautiful cultures all over. Uh, you know, people are doing a lot more uh, uh, traveling right now. Cruise ships has opened up uh, uh, in a, in the, the world in a different kind of way. Um, we were recently in Santorini in Greece, a beautiful island. I've been there back, I guess, several times. When the cruise ships come in, all of a sudden they dump three, four, five thousand people into this little island. And, uh, well, you know, you can hardly walk around it so crowded. And so there's a big impact that tourism is having on uh, some of these r- r- rural heritage areas. And it's a big concern whether or not uh, uh, they'll be able to continue with their lifestyle. Uh, well, let me ask, okay, um, 
how is design um, in this book going to be used? What do you hope to contribute to other professionals in rural and urban and to go off the tourism thing? Because I'm in Florida and, uh, you know, rural areas like the Keys uh, are highly impacted by tourism, which we we enjoy welcoming our guests. But, um, you know, how can design, uh, have you found, uh, benefit everyone and still keep the environment intact? Well, that's that's the uh, probably uh, you know one of the uh, critical questions for our future, because we need to find a way uh, to resolve that issue, uh, and part of it I think has to do with tourists when they when they visit an area, they need to try to find the reality of the place and not just. Uh, look at it through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, And at the same time, the people who are uh, entertaining the tourists, uh, they need to realize that the reason they're there is because of their heritage. And if they don't hang on to their heritage, uh, the tourists aren't going to come there anymore. one answer to that question I have found is the winery business around the world, and uh, particularly in uh, Mendoza, Argentina, and uh, uh, in Chile, in the south of uh, Santiago, uh, where the rural uh, landscape, where they've always been growing uh, wines, uh, they continue to grow uh, grapes and great wines, but they've also become a heck of a tourist uh, focus. And uh, so they built some really beautiful buildings and uh, uh, that connect with the land in a very uh, uh, exciting kind of way. And I think that the, the winery industry maybe is one way to kind of illustrate how, how an agricultural heritage uh, can uh, uh, be continued and uh, and handle the influx of tourism, which also brings on a lot of economic benefit to the area. And uh, but at the same time, makes them realize that if they don't hang on to their landscape, uh, the beauty of it and the production of it from a, a grape standpoint, uh, they'll lose it all. And so uh, uh, you know, there's there are some examples like that I've, I've discovered that are uh, are really uh, working uh, very well. One of my granddaughters uh, recently uh, visited uh, North Vietnam uh, as part of a school project, and they lived uh, uh, for two year, two weeks on a uh, small rural farm uh, where these rice paddies were operating. And they actually went out and helped on the rice paddy uh, a couple of days of working to just experience it and were able to communicate with some of the other young people and uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, education is, a, if it's done right, can, uh, can help people, particularly younger people, see the world and do, see it in such a way that they can help uh, preserve it for the future. And um, so design, what I'm writing about and what the Minnesota Design Center at the University and the College of Design, where I'm located right now, uh, this is exactly what we're trying to do is to bridge the uh, gap between urban and rural uh, using design as a problem solving process and as a way of getting uh, bottom up ideas to emerge out of the people themselves so that uh, we, we don't uh, repeat some of the problems that Professor Kramer found out over in Wisconsin and uh, so that uh, because if, if the idea emerges out of the people themselves, then you're going to have the, the support to uh, continue that idea and, uh, and implement it, maintain it and whatnot, whatever it is. And uh, so, you know, design is, is a way to do it. I also think design is a way to uh, that we can start to bridge gaps between uh, in the uh, universities. Uh, you know, we have a, we have a, a college or a, a school of engineering, uh, and then we have a college of design. We're, I don't think I've ever seen 
project where people from engineering and people from design are working together on a project of some kind. Um, and uh, so uh, the uh, land grant university, I, I think design can become a way uh, for them to break out of the, some of these academic silos and to become kind of get back to the roots of the land grant university, uh, which is to bring education, research, and public service uh, to people who work in the regions where they're located, whether they're urban or rural um, or peri-urban, uh, they have to address that broad uh, cross-section. So I don't know if that fully answers your uh, question, but uh, uh, there are not only myself, but there are others, design people from different design professions who are really thinking the same way, and uh, and uh, so we're we're trying to do that. Oh no, I think that's a great idea, and uh, reminding us all that you know it's just about design and doing good design and and making connections. And uh, yeah, a lot of uh, places and programs don't always focus on. Well, I don't know. It goes back and forth between rural and urban. So uh, it's nice to have um, and think about a different point of view that um, architecture is just, uh, it's all of it. Yeah. Um, well, Dewey, I want to I thank you so much for being here today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been very enlightening. And uh, can you tell our audience, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I guess I, I in a way I told you, I'm, uh, I Major project uh, is Norway House. Uh, it's a $10.6 million building project right in the heart of Minneapolis, uh, uh, where we're trying to reach out to the broader community. And a lot of Somalia people are actually renting space within the existing building. And uh, uh, to illustrate how on an urban scale, how design uh, can uh, speak to a much broader kind of thing. For instance, uh, the, the whole design concept is based on glaciers uh, because glaciers form Minnesota and the glaciers formed uh, Norway because when they melted, they created the landscape that we uh, have with all our lakes here in Minnesota and the great fjords uh, in Norway. So the idea of water uh, became the uh, theme by which the landscape and the buildings uh, all are kind of related and integrated. Uh, so, for instance, the, the new building will have uh, some columns with uh, struts going down to support a floating roof, which looks a little bit like ancient sailing ships sitting in a harbor. So, uh, and then the harbor is a, a wave action of where this idea of water all comes from. And uh, so it's a place of tranquility and uh, a, you know, a safe place. And so the architecture and the landscape kind of reflect the broader idea of Norway House in terms of its of how it speaks to the world and how it speaks to the neighborhood around it. Uh, and so um, it's just, it just an example of how, uh, you know, I, at least I as an architect in this one project can use design in a much broader way than rather just simply trying to design a beautiful building. I think... Uh, at the university, I'm involved with the Minnesota Design Center. I guess I didn't tell you that my Center for Rural Design, uh, the money I was getting from the state, uh, the College of Agriculture decided that uh, they could use that money in different ways. So uh, they, quote, confiscated the funds and terminated my uh, center. So I then shifted uh, back to the College of Design and, uh, and uh, joined with Tom Fisher in the Minnesota Design Center. And it used to be called the Metropolitan Design Center, but he wanted to reach out and to encompass the larger rural areas. And so it's now the Minnesota Design Center. And yet, when we are looking at issues, we have water. We have water in Minnesota that goes up into Canada and, uh, and uh, through Winnipeg. And we have others that go out through Lake Superior. And we have water that goes down the Mississippi all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So these borders, uh, there's so many things that... Uh, or antiques, uh, like townships and counties in Minnesota were all laid out back in the 1880s. I mean, uh, over 140 years ago, and we're still kind of stuck with a lot of these artificial boundaries. And um, so we're trying to find ways uh, to cross the bridges, uh, 
not only within the state of Minnesota, but to also reach across into other uh, states and and in Canada and uh, uh, to find ways that design and design tools uh, like uh, 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 environmental geographic uh, illustrations uh, can collect data and put it all together so you can cross borders uh, because so much of it is set up on these boundaries. And so that's what I'm kind of uh, working on at the, uh, the university. And uh, and then my wife and I were uh, still traveling the world and I'm still sketching. So uh, life is fun and exciting and the world is great. And I certainly encourage people to, to get around and see it because uh, uh, if, if people you know, sit within their boundaries and don't cross into another area. Uh, you know, they just don't see the world as the way it is because we all, we're all humans. We all live on the same planet. And uh, so we need to figure out how to work together and, and uh, create the world uh, for the future. So that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying anyway. <laughs> Um, well, again, um, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, if you decide to write another book, just let me know. I'll do that. Okay. And very, very nice to uh, meet you over the uh, speakers here, uh, Tricia, and uh, appreciate very much what you're, uh, what you're doing. And uh, I'm glad to be part of it. <clears throat> thank you so much. And you have a, a wonderful evening sketching. Thank you. I'll do that. <laughs> And again, I want to thank you all for listening today. This has been New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And the book is Agricultural Landscapes, Seeing Rule Through Design by Dewey Thorbeck, published by Routledge in 2019.